Another pot of coffee is brewing and no, it's not got any pumpkin spice in it. My third cup is almost finished, so that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. It's the Tuesday before Halloween, so I'm taking things to a new spooky level. Some of you may have seen the odd little clues I've been posting infrequently on Twitter, but no guesses as yet. And also, you may have read the true fact I posted about myself that is most definitely Halloween-y. This week, I'm going to be talking about a Halloween-themed DCOM, and I'll also be talking about one of my favourite books of all time. I will be giving you a quick rundown of films you can watch on your own if you are a bit of a cowardy custard like I am, or with the kids in the house on Halloween if you don't want to be handling nightmares for the next few months. I will add, I'm not using this podcast as therapy. However, I will be giving you a very quick rundown of my mental health for the last week. Here is normally where I would be introducing a very odd dream. But following on from last week's CryFest 2020 Mark 600, I haven't actually been dreaming. I've been waking up with a stonking headache, but no dreams, at least any that I can recall. I'm hugely disappointed, truth be told, because a weird dream would be completely thematic for Halloween. I do have a recurring nightmare, but it's not one that I feel ready to share, and it paints quite a few people in a bad light, though... This is subconscious and also it's not one that I've had recently. So I guess that means I'm actually moving right on to the film review. I know, what actually is happening here? Before I do that though, I want to give a shout out to another amazing podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Find out why you should listen to them by listening to this. fact. Over 700 people have been killed by the hands of the police just this year alone. I'm Catherine Sheffield, host of the weekly podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Each week, I unravel true stories of victims whose lives have been affected by bad apple officers of the law. I bring this relevant conversation into the public spotlight because it's a way to provoke change and reform. Not all officers are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode to balance the spectrum. A Few Bad Apples is available wherever you get your podcasts. Give them a listen, but not until you've finished listening to my podcast, please. This week I am talking about Girl vs. Monster. It's actually Halloween themed, so pretty appropriate. It was part of the Disney Channel Monstoba back in 2012. In fact, it was the second to last year. Girl vs. Monster seems to take a little inspiration from Buffy. Our lead is 15-year-old Skylar Lewis, who has never actually known fear. God, that would be nice. She's a skilled gymnast who'll tackle anything, dangerous tricks and stunts, jumping off whatever, because she really isn't afraid of anything. Skylar is played by Olivia Holt, who many Marvel fans may well recognise having played Tandy in the unfortunately cancelled Cloak and Dagger. 
Okay, so the film starts at a mansion where a group of teenagers are setting up for their annual Halloween party. A band is rehearsing their set for the following night while Skylar and one of her friends, Henry, are decorating. Oh, and if you've seen the OA, you'll recognise Henry. He's played by Brendan Mayer, who now plays Jesse. Skylar has noticed that one of the banners is crooked and ignoring her friend's concerns because seriously it's up quite high and there is no ladder she asks him for a boost and performs a pretty impressive jump in order to straighten the banner up pay attention this actually plays an important part later on in the film despite her lack of fear Skylar's parents are incredibly overprotective of her and she's not allowed to do anything over Halloween so she's never been able to go out and trick or treat and she's certainly not allowed to go to any parties. They keep her in the house and won't let her do anything. To be fair though, 15 is a little bit old to go trick or treating for sweets, right? She's walking home with her friend Sadie who is played by an actress called Keris Dorsey who has since gone on to star in one of my mum's favourite shows, Ray Donovan. Sadie is incredibly soft-spoken and constantly anxious about everything. She hates the idea of failing. She doesn't like public speaking at all. And because she's incredibly intelligent, it's something that she's often asked to do, make presentations in front of the class. The two girls are walking home and they're talking about Ryan, who just happens to be the lead guitarist of the band that will be performing on Halloween. And it it's quite clear that Skylar is quite infatuated with him. Skylar encourages Sadie to take the shortcut through the creepy cemetery as it's getting a little bit dark and it's late. <laughs> Not the best reason from my perspective to actually take a walk through a cemetery, but that's what Skylar tries to encourage Sadie to do and eventually manages. She's definitely near to her curfew and if she doesn't get home and doesn't show that she can follow the rules then she is sure that no matter what she will not be able to persuade her parents to let her go to this party that she really wants to go to to be fair dream on her parents have already made it quite clear halloween is a no-go both girls are so oblivious to their surroundings that a dark shadow gargoyle which has been following them both through the cemetery is about to swoop down on them when a light comes out of what seems like nowhere and knocks it out it turns out that not only is Skylar being followed home by this gargoyle thing she's also being followed home by two pretty adept hunters who look as though they're dressed in costumes that were sort of taken from the original set of back to the future complete with odd welders masks it seems that despite proving that Skylar can follow every single rule her parents have set for her, they are both incredibly definite in their not-on-Halloween decree. No matter what Skylar says, her parents are not going to be swayed. However, what's frustrating is they never give any reason for it. She's been told definitively she isn't allowed to go to the party at the local haunted mansion. And here, this is what was so confusing for me. The name of this mansion is mentioned several times through the movie. And I mean, it's constantly being said. And I still don't know what it is. It could be Macquarie, McCrary, McCreary. It differs depending on who said it. And to be honest, it's not the most important thing. It just annoys me that I can't make out what is being said. Anyway, Skylar has now been told, no, you're not going to the Halloween party and you're not allowed to go to one until you're 16, though it's never made clear as to why it's 16. Apparently, she's nearly 16, 
(laughs) but then that's not enough and just like 13 is apparently nearly an adult according to characters in much older decoms i can see sort of where they're coming from seriously to be fair i wasn't allowed to do anything apart from get a job and babysit until i was over 16 and in the uk there are a fair number of things or at least there were a fair number of things that were legal at 16 well they were back in 1990 when i turned 16 (laughs) yes okay laugh it up i'm old it seems that her parents have been hiding some things from her. Actually, they've been hiding quite a lot of some things from her, including the reason why they won't like Skylar go out to a Halloween party or on Halloween full stop until she's over 16. Though, I, as I've already mentioned, 16 seems like a pretty arbitrary age, which is never explained. But perhaps it's a Buffy thing. I don't know. Her parents, it turns out, are the ones who were protecting her in the cemetery, knocking out the gargoyle and trapping it in something much smaller than the ghost traps in Ghostbusters, though it looked kind of like, actually, thinking about it, it looks kind of like an old Discman, you know, the Sony Discman things that they used to have with the flip lid. The only thing that's different is where the bit that you could normally see the disc swirling around in, there's a light and a little bulb thing. And then they are taking these spirits, spectres, demons back to a storage unit pod physics experiment that's stored in a lab in their home. They live in the same place where they store these demons. But whatever. The day of the party arrives and Skylar and her friends, Henry and Sadie, are eating lunch when Ryan band guy who Skylar has a massive crush on comes to their table and starts to talk about the party doing his best to ensure that Skylar is actually coming it seems that her crush isn't at all one-sided despite knowing that she's not allowed to go she tells him that she is definitely going to be there and Ryan starts to explain to the trio that his dad got special permission to have it in the mansion what better place after all to have a Halloween party than somewhere that has has got a mysterious past and could potentially be hugely haunted. After he leaves the table, Ryan's ex-girlfriend and the current lead singer of the band turns up like a bad penny. She tells Skylar to stay away from Ryan as he's hers. Seriously, what is it with girls saying, oh, I own that person, they're mine, stay away from them. It's an incredibly unpleasant and unattractive quality and also if you've watched shadow hunters or the last season of arrow then you may well recognize the actress who plays myra she's played by Catherine mcnamara sure that skylar now sees things her way myra heads off to catch up with ryan myra is determined to show that skylar isn't all that special so seeing that one of the party banners on the stairs at the school is a little bit crooked she decides that she's going to prove she can do everything too and performs a jump unfortunately it doesn't go all that well you can imagine where this is going and as i said this does play a part or the earlier one played a part and she ends up injuring her back and neck all this means is that she's going to be spending the night at the halloween party at home with a neck brace on consuming comfort food because she won't be able to walk or go anywhere I think that perhaps sometimes people need to acknowledge that training does help. Earlier in the film, Skylar admits that she had nearly seven years of gymnastic training. And in real life, Olivia Holt, the actress, did actually take gymnastics classes and parkour. So she definitely has the experience required for some of these stunts. I'm not saying she actually did them in the film, just that 
it would be realistic to assume that she had been able to do it had she been asked to. Skylar's parents, Julie and Steve, are really concerned right now. Obviously, Skylar's still at school and the parent, her parents are downstairs talking with their trainee, Cobb. It seems that more demons are showing up and they are much stronger than in previous years. They're actually almost corporeal, as though they know that something is about to happen. When Skylar gets home, both her parents tell her that they're going to an annual convention of mycology. Oh, I I did actually forget to mention her parents are mycologists by trade, and I had to look up how to spell this and what it was. It's the study of fungi. And apparently this event coincidentally happens every single Halloween. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they both have to go out and demon hunt at all. Nothing at all. Skylar is told that she has to stay in the house with Cobb, who is actually in charge of making sure that the creatures they've already caught don't escape and that the power supply and everything is fine. And just to make sure that she doesn't leave, they put their security system on. Here is the point that I really do wish they'd communicated with Skylar and told her why they needed her to stay home. I can understand they want to keep her safe, but leaving her completely vulnerable because she has no idea what they're protecting her from is short-sighted. I know it's a plot device and they're trying to give her a normal childhood, etc, etc. But seriously, if they had made her aware, then perhaps she wouldn't have done what she did and put everyone in danger. Skylar is determined to go to this party. She doesn't want to miss out on all the fun and Ryan is going to be there. Even better, he's actually made specific arrangements and he's told her he wants her to be there. Skylar's not gonna miss out on this so to escape the house and its incredibly sophisticated security system I really am curious to know how they justified that to their teenage daughter they're mycologists there's no need for a really sophisticated security system she cuts the power to the house there are quite a few points in this film where I can't help but draw parallels to Ghostbusters the original 1984 version This particular scene reminds me very much of when Peck, the environmental protection agency officer, goes to the fire station and deactivates the containment unit and all the ghosts that they've captured escape. You know, the bit before the end of the film. Okay, so all the demons have been freed and for the first time in her life, Skylar actually feels fear. It turns out that there is a spirit connected to every person and it feeds on their fears. Skylar's is incredibly powerful, a demon called Diamata, Diamata, it's spelt weirdly, I think it's Diamata, and she was trapped by Julie and Steve when Skylar was a baby. In another parallel to Ghostbusters, Diamata is wearing a flowing bright red gown, has wild curly dark hair and makeup that makes her look a little bit like Sigourney Weaver when she's Zool the gatekeeper on the roof of her apartment building. She's really powerful and needs to draw fear from someone who's incredibly strong and in this case, it's Skylar. I feel incredibly sorry for Cobb here. He's so far played quite a small role in the film and it's left to him to explain to Skylar that her parents are monster hunters. Of course, his explanation is incredibly short and to the point. In fact, it is, that lady is immortal, wants to destroy your parents and possess your soul for all eternity. That's it. That's the explanation. 
When Diamata meets up with her contemporaries, who just happen to be Henry and Sadie's fear monsters, Theodosia and Bob, they have a rather funny conversation. And no joke, I sat, watched this bit and thought, (laughs) that's quite amusing, really, because they have a conversation. And obviously, Diamata has been out of the game for 15 years. And she asks what's going on. Has there been anything entertaining happening? They start talking about books and horror films. And Theodosia makes a point of saying that vampire films have become romances. And I really couldn't help but make a parallel here between what they were talking about and sparkly vampires in Twilight. Knowing that they have to make things right, or at least Skylar, the twit that set everyone free in order to go to a party, does. Henry, Sadie and Skylar head off. They wander through the forest, which is... Seriously... There's a forest, a cemetery. Could we get any more horror movie theme? They're wandering through this forest when they are pounced on by tree stumps that have faces. This scene is really dark. And by that, I don't mean dark, sinister. I mean, it's actually really poor lighting. So you can barely make out anything. Poor Henry is trapped by his feared demon, Bob a scarecrow who taunts him in the way that bullies do at school and Henry is literally frozen with fear. He is transported back to the lab by Cobb because there's no way they can leave him frozen in the forest. It's now down to Sadie and Skylar to make everything right. It's at this point that something completely pointless happens. Diamata is apparently in need of a new costume, so she heads to Myra's house and possesses the injured girl, who is miraculously, obviously healed, and heads to the party to cause some mayhem. Of course, during this time, Skylar is still fighting the fact that she is now afraid of stuff, though, to be honest, she still seems relatively unscared of everything. Apparently, her biggest fear is performing in public. Join the club, mate. It's why I gave up performing on stage. As Sadie and Skylar wander around the McCreary, McQuarrie, McQuarrie house, whatever, it's not important, they discover that it was actually where Skylar's mum grew up. Why wouldn't she actually tell her daughter this? Isn't it still theirs? I can't imagine that a man who literally sacrificed himself to Diamata to protect his family would die intestate. Oh, I did forget to mention that the reason Diamata is now Skylar's demon is that she is passed through the family and her grandfather, a third generation monster hunter, was her last victim. Myra, complete with parasitic Diamata inside her, arrives at the party, performs quickly with the band and then tells them that she's going to find someone better as their rubbish, which is obviously another way of feeding on people's fears. Diamata, her initial gambit played, heads off to sort out Skylar's parents, having already captured them slightly earlier, through tricking them into believing that she had captured Skylar. Things at this point start to happen incredibly quickly. Sadie confronts her own fear demon, the sternly dressed Theodosia, but runs away when she can't think of anything to do to win the battle. Skylar realises that she needs to fight her own fears by performing. Cue a song that I actually think would be really good for Zumba. Dylan is briefly possessed by Diamata, who tells Skylar that she sucks. Well, using words to that effect. 
And apparently Dylan's biggest fear is asking Skylar out because the moment he does, Diamata is pushed out of his body and they finish the song while demons, ghosts and spectres do their best to cause mayhem around them. And this is a scene, it's almost like you can tell it's CGI. What do you mean you can tell? You can really tell it's CGI. Oh, and poor old Henry, I forgot completely about him. He was defrosted at the Lewis family lab by Cobb and he arrives to tell Sadie, Skylar and everybody else just in time that to fight Diamata and her cohorts, they need to confront their fears and beat them, which is what actually cues Skylar's performance. Realising that she's fighting a losing battle, Diamata pulls out her ace card. Sadie and Henry have now both confronted their own demons and won, but Diamata has Skylar's parents. With the help of her friends, of course, everybody needs friends, Skylar battles Diamata and finally wins. I could go into more detail, but the battle is a lot of fired weapons and some average funny quips. Diamata explodes into pieces that are then pulled into one of the traps that Julian Steve designed. The film ends with the promise of a sequel, but to be fair, after eight years, and the fact that Monstoba is no longer in existence, I'm not sure that we're going to get one unless it's Girl vs. Monster, the sixth generation, in another 15-20 years. When it comes down to it, Girl vs. Monster is a vast improvement on many of the earlier DCOMs. It has a slightly higher production value, or at least people have got much better at managing the budget they're given. The soundtrack is good, but I really do wish I could understand why every single character has to be able to sing and dance perfectly. Why can't more of them be awkward like Ali Dawson, or like a normal, untrained person such as me? Having said that, this soundtrack is really good to clean to. And I know, because I did it this weekend, I had it blurring out of my speakers, and it was actually really good fun. Unfortunately, Spotify only has a few of the songs and they kept on playing on repeat, so after about 25 minutes, I had to switch to something else. I do think that this film has two messages. The first is to be honest. If her parents had told Skylar why they didn't want her going out on Halloween, they could have probably saved themselves a lot of hassle. The second message is do what you're told. Is a party really important enough that you have to ignore what you've been told to do? Skylar didn't need to cut the power to the house, but then if her parents had actually told her you know what it's a circle if her parents had told her she wouldn't have cut the power and she wouldn't have cut the power if she'd known or perhaps she would we'll never know this film was definitely influenced by a lot of other things that came before it both on tv and film that's unsurprising though when you consider the fact that the director Stuart Gillard previously worked on shows like Charmed both the original and the reboot However, for me, the most obvious influences I could see when I watched it were definitely Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Ghostbusters. So you could quite easily say that Girl vs. Monster is a Buffy and Ghostbusters mashup. A 
Okay, I'm not a total chicken. I have watched quite a few dark and horror-filled films. In fact, my brother and sister used to hate it if I was in charge because Poltergeist was a really popular choice in my house. Mostly so I could laugh. Yep, I didn't find it frightening at all. But if given the choice, I would rather watch something that has me groaning. Seriously, get your minds out of the gutter. Or laughing. Or perhaps crying. I, I do like a tear fest. For that reason, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the perfect films to watch if you want something a little spooky but aren't up for a complete jump scare and hide under the blankets on Saturday night. Because remember, this coming Saturday is Halloween. Seriously though, these are films to watch if you don't want to end up with Smarties and popcorn all over the sofa. There are hundreds of films but I'm not going to give you a rundown of all of them. These are ones that won't give you hugely disturbing nightmares, or your children, if you have them. And I'm just going to be giving you a short summary, because there is no chart. At least, I couldn't rank them. The first one is Halloween Town. Yes, it is a decom. If you want to find out more about it, head over to listen to Be Nostalgic, who did a fantastic episode about it a few weeks ago. Twitches. This was another Monstober decom, this time a vehicle for the Maori sisters from Sister Sister. It was also directed by Stuart Gillard, who was the director we've just been talking about with Girl vs. Monster. The Corpse Bride. There isn't much I can say about this. Apart from this fantastic stop motion film was produced by Tim Burton, was released in 2005 and has two of his staples playing characters or at least voicing characters, Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. The next one, it's it has to be in this list, Coraline. It's another beautifully done stop motion film based on the illustrated book by the incredible Neil Gaiman. If you want to find out more about this, then I would recommend you head over to listen to the Coraline episode by Verbal Diorama. I'm going to post the links to the episodes in the comments so you can go and listen to them after you've finished listening to this. Roald Dahl had a way about him, so you may well know where I'm going next. He was able to write some pretty nasty characters and yet still make them child appropriate. I'm not going to make any comments here about his personal feelings regarding certain things. I am determined to separate art and artist. I know that that is something that is A, incredibly difficult and B, can be quite controversial. Angelica Houston is fantastic in the role of the Grand High Witch. Yes, I know that this year they have released a brand new version with Anne Hathaway, but I haven't seen it. So it's for this reason, possibly many other reasons as I haven't seen it, the 1990 version of The Witches is recommended viewing. I'm going to warn you now though that when she takes her mask off, all the face masks and plastic surgery in the world won't help her. There are loads more and if you've got suggestions and you think I've missed something off this list, head over to my Twitter and post them. I am sure that I have mentioned this before. I don't watch live TV anymore, having realised that I was watching way more on streaming services and that led me to get rid of first my Sky subscription and then my TV licence. 
For those who don't live in the UK, we have to pay a fee to watch live television. Anyway, since that point, I have very rarely seen anything in the way of adverts. And this week, I watched a few Aurora Tea Garden mysteries on Channel 5, on Catch Up anyway. And I finally saw the latest advert from McDonald's for the first time. And I cried. Yes, I cried at McDonald's advert. That being said, this week hasn't been a bad one. I had a day off work on Tuesday and had my hair done. I think it looked great and it made me feel much better about myself. Oh, and having Tuesday off was also really good because I was so disorganised last week that I was still editing Tuesday's episode at nearly two o'clock in the morning. Not a good move and not something I'm going to be repeating in a hurry. I know I've already mentioned that this week I didn't dream. You'd have heard it if I had. Not, well, not a dream that I remember and it's very unusual for me and I would normally be concerned. However, I do think it had far more to do with the fact that when I finally did fall asleep, it was so heavy that waking up left me with an absolutely horrific headache. That said, despite the crying and the sleep-induced hangovers, this week has actually been pretty good. My team was praised at work as we've been working bloody hard to make sure we're reaching targets. And as everyone knows, in this economy, that is really difficult, especially when you sell luxury cars. I had my hair done. I saw my mum last Sunday and the camellia on my balcony is blooming despite the sucky weather. I also started to think about restarting the project to look deeper into my family tree. I just wish that sources like Ancestry didn't cost so much. It's great if you know your family came from one single country, but with surnames like Ombert and Frankenstein on both certificates, not mine, but my parents, the chances of that being the case are really slim. Actually, <laughs> it's less than slim, it's non-existent. Oh, and the fact I posted on Twitter is 100% true. I do have an ancestor called Victor Frankenstein. He was my great-great-uncle. Some of my family officially changed their surname by deed poll following the release of the 1931 film, but most just changed it unofficially. And let me tell you, finding that information is really hard because the minute they pass away, their real name is on their death certificate. It also has to be on their marriage certificate and their birth certificate. And if they've changed their name and you know what they changed it to, that's fine. If you have no idea, you're flat out of luck. It definitely makes for a long-winded search. Last week I mentioned I was going to be talking about one of my favourite books. And I normally keep my promises. Not always, but normally. So here it is. Oh, and if the title seems familiar, it's because it's also a film. But please don't judge the book on that if you've seen it. The film is not anything at all like the book, which itself is incredible. The book, not the film. So the book I am going to talk about is The Changeover by Margaret May, who was, in all fairness, a badass. She raised two children on her own, had a tattoo put on her shoulder at the age of 62 of a skull with a rose in between its teeth. And she wrote some incredible YA books long before they were the big money makers they are today. Before leaving work to write full time, she worked as a librarian and her writing won her two Carnegie medals. The Changeover was released in 1984 and was my introduction to supernatural romance. 
a love that has continued for the last 36 years. Being honest, I found this book the day it arrived in my tiny village library and I was fascinated by the cover, even though it sounds really dull by today's standards. It was a drawing of a girl with huge eyes, wildly curly dark hair and a single coin in her hand. I now have three copies of the book, including a paperback that I purchased in 1986, which is both incredibly fragile and also probably the most beautiful of the covers that I own. The story is based in the suburb of Gardendale, which is actually based on a real place called Bishopdale in Christchurch, New Zealand. It starts with a line that seems so innocuous, but it drew me in. And though it's not as memorable as last night I dreamt of Mandalay again, or it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. However, to a 10 year old girl, it was relatable. Although the label on the hair shampoo said Paris and had a picture of a beautiful girl with the Eiffel Tower behind her bare shoulder, it was forced to tell the truth in tiny print under the picture. Made in New Zealand, it said. Wisdom Laboratories, para Paraumu. And I hope I got that spell right, that pronounced right. Just for a moment, Laura had had a dream of washing her hair and coming out from under the shower to find she was not only marvellously beautiful, but also transported to Paris. Laura Chant is 14 years old. She lives with her mum, Kate, and her younger brother, Jacko, who is three. Her father left and remarried when Jacko was barely born. Laura is different, but not so different that it's obvious on the outside. She gets warnings, something like deja vu, and they make her cautious, but are laughed off by everyone as though they are nothing. Her life is normal, and it is this normality that appealed to me as a 10-year-old child. She isn't stunningly gorgeous with an incredible figure and a genius IQ. She is the sort of girl that most of us once were. One of the most important things for me on rereading also happens in the first chapter, a hint of things to come. Yet sometimes, confronting the mirror, Nikki's remark came back like a compliment, suggesting that changes were now possible for her if ever she wanted them. Laura knows that something is going to happen. She can feel it in her bones or her water as she tries to explain to her mum, but her pleas to stay home are ignored and, as May writes, she felt the jaws snap down behind her and knew she had been swallowed up. It's so funny when I read some of the chapters now. The conversations and events at school for Laura are so 1980s teen. If your friend had a boyfriend, then she would be constantly trying to set you up. Seriously, she really would. There is so much pressure placed on you to find a boyfriend, but on so many levels, it was just hand-holding and kissing and a trip to the pictures. In Laura's case, it's her friend Nikki trying to set her up, telling her that she'll get her boyfriend to tell his friend to call her. I love these tiny little glimpses into her normal day because these are such normal events that are sort of pushed into something and the supernatural elements are kind of an umbrella, if that makes sense. They they aren't the completion of the story. They aren't the most important bit. They are an addition to the real story, which is about Laura, her brother, her mum, 
and her life in general, really. That evening after school and while she's waiting with Jacko for Kate to finish work at a local bookshop, the pair walk into a small and new junk shop. The owner is incredibly interested in Jacko, constantly commenting on the fact that he's a baby and he's so young and he's so cute and Laura is really disturbed by it. The man leaned forward as he spoke and his dreadful smell struck her like a blow, a smell that brought a to mind mildew, wet mattresses, unopened rooms, stale sweat, the very smell of rotting time. Jacko loves stamps and Comedy Bragg, for that is the creepy man's name, doesn't even sound nice, accommodates him but the stamp is nothing like the ones he gets at the library. It's Brack's face and Jacko screams in pain the moment it's pressed onto his hand. Not only is Jacko miserable and upset, But Laura, when they get home, can't get the stamp to fade even with soap and water and Jacko cannot bear to look at it at all. When Kate comes home from work a little bit late and brings a man with her to share their supper, someone called Chris, Laura tells her mum that she thinks that Jacko may be ill. But Kate is absolutely determined that that cannot be the case because A, they can't afford to be sick and B, they are tough. Of course, Jacko's not well. He had a bad night of dreadful dreams and Laura is being fatalistic even as Kate points out that the stamp that they kept on going on about has gone. When Laura is asked where she thinks it went, she actually says, Dissolved, I expect. Dissolved into Jacko's blood. It's as though she has this feeling and no matter what anybody else says, she's sticking by it. When Laura brings Jacko home that evening, Kate is ready to go out on a date. She's going with the man she brought home the previous evening, Chris. But having seen how sick Jacko appears to be, she cancels. Initially, Chris seems really nice and accepting of it. But there are certain things I ignored the first, second and likely 20th time I read the book. And that is the way that when Kate says that they all see each other again, he says, I might catch up with you when the boy's over whatever it is that's wrong with him. I mean, that is a really harsh thing to say. This isn't worth my time almost. However, Laura actually calls him out on his behaviour and tells him that he sounds as though he's blaming Kate and Jacko for what's happening when it's nobody's fault. Go, Laura! Having said that, I love Laura as a character. I think she's incredible and I really admired her as a child. Bearing in mind, I was four years younger than Laura is in the book when I first read it. Jacko is still having bad dreams, but Laura promises him that she is going to catch the nasty fox and fix everything, even though she has no idea at all what she's dealing with. Knowing that she needs help, she tells her mum she's going to pop over to see one of her friends joking that she will shout for help if she sees any molesters. There is mention at some point when she's walking through Gardendale that a girl at their school was attacked and assaulted when she was walking through the town. However, Laura is positive she's going to be fine. And she's lying to her mum because she's not going to see her friend. She's going to see Sorensen Carlyle, who is a sixth former at her school, and a prefect. She knows something about him and she's not going to tell her mum given the fact that her mum doesn't believe her about 
anything so far. For me, this is the point where I always get chills down my spine and I think the story picks up somewhat. And I have to be honest, the feeling hasn't changed at all in the last 36 years since I first read the book. Laura is going to meet Sorensen Carlyle and confront him, demanding his help. Given what she knows, she's taking a massive risk by going to his home. I know it's strange, but Sorensen Carlyle, who Laura refers to as sorry, has a dark past. Having said that, he's also kind of the comic relief. He wasn't the girl that his mother wanted to complete the coven of maiden, mother and crone. So he was given up for adoption at birth. Unfortunately, his adoptive family turned out to be abusive. And one day he simply found his way back to the Carlisle witches who realised that this child, boy or not, was the maiden that they needed to create their triumvirate. Laura is absolutely flabbergasted when she arrives at the house, which is called Janua Cayley, and not only does Sorensen's mother, Miriam, recognise her, but she also knows her name. They've never met and probably only seen each other in passing. They are two different spectrums of the neighbourhood. And when she's so shown into Sorensen's study by Miriam, he greets her with, What's brought you into my parlour? It's late to be visiting a man in his room's chant. Seriously, he's trying to be seductive. It's quite funny. Then they have a really strange conversation about the length of her school skirt until his mother tells him to stop. And in and he actually says to her, to Laura's embarrassment, that he was trying to let Laura know he thinks her legs are sexy. I know that now in the time of me too that would be considered inappropriate and I can't make excuses for him ever (laughs) but at the same time he's so oblivious to the fact that his behavior is not acceptable appropriate or anything else bearing in mind she is a 14 year old girl when his mother finally leaves the room Sorensen actually asks her what is wrong and Laura lays out everything she knows When he's not putting on a facade, he's actually rather lacking in confidence, at least when he's around Laura. Sorensen has a stutter, and it's obvious that the fact that she recognised him for what he is, namely a male witch, he hasn't got a response for her. She's incredibly blunt and to the point. (laughs) She actually says, I need help, I think, and you're a witch, aren't you? Sorry is as far from impressed as you can get. He thought that Laura had come to see him because she liked him and it turns out she just wants him for his powers. Well, the powers she thinks he has. For 18 months, we've given one another these looks across the school playground and I thought she'd come because he's clearly angry and disappointed and he can't actually finish his sentences. Laura gives as good as she gets though and tells Sorry to double stuff your broomstick. An insult that still makes me chuckle and I'm glad that it isn't one used in Harry Potter. I think it's uniquely May. Here's where things take a turn for the worse though. Jacko is still fighting whatever he's fighting but it's getting harder and he's getting sicker. Asking Sorry was a pointless exercise and Laura feels completely helpless even as the doctor is called and they are told that he will need to go to hospital. It does sound to me like their dad is a bit of a deadbeat. He has money because when they are asked, can you afford 
can you afford private health care? Kate says, oh, no, we can't. But his dad can. I'll ask him. I'm sure he'll give us some money for this. What do you mean I'm sure he'll give us some money for this? Does he not play child support? When Kate is out calling her ex-husband to get help, Sorensen arrives asking to be invited in. He makes some sarcastic hints that once you've invited me in, you'll have no control over me. But it turns out his curiosity has got the better of him. And the moment he sees Jacko, he knows that Laura's not been pulling his chain. Unfortunately, Laura needs reassurance and Sorry is completely crap at it. He's incapable of reassuring her. He tells her that her brother is going to die and is so unemotional about it as though he is unable to comprehend why telling her this may actually upset her. Or no, may about it does actually upset her. Kate comes back from speaking with her ex-husband, tells Laura that she is going to be staying with Jacko in the hospital and Sorensen pipes up with, oh, she can stay with us. We've got plenty of room because it turns out that the friend she would normally stay with is away. Laura isn't quite sure that she wants to stay with Sorensen because of all these things, but Sorensen is overjoyed and actually starts joking, I hope. Now you're in my power, he tells her. Laura is less than impressed and also proves so much about her innocence, which is important for later, when she is baffled when he tells her he wants to make her tremble. At the Carlisle house, the two older witches reveal a lot about Sorensen, why he is so different, and yet he is what he was born to be. They are welcoming, they want to find out more about who Laura is, and after she has spoken with her mum, they make a proposition, one that is so horrifying to Sorry that he starts to stammer. They want to carry out a changeover. They want to help her, and this is their way of providing her with the tools to help him a changeover essentially would mean changing from mortal to witch they see she has the potential she is what they call a halfway house Sorensen is not at all keen on the idea going so far as to slip into Laura's room that night and tell her that she shouldn't feel pressured into agreeing well It starts that way and then it becomes an awkward seduction that goes nowhere when she begins to ask him personal questions. Remember here, she is 14 years old. She asks him if he's ever slept with someone and he says that he has and it was nice in bits. He then leaves her with her thoughts and I will say while he says a lot of stuff, he never puts pressure on her or touches her without consent. He really is an awkward and uncomfortable teenage boy. I'm not making excuses. I've already said not making excuses, but he really is incredibly awkward, uncomfortable, has been through a heck of a lot of stuff. And he thought she liked him as much as he likes her, but he never puts any pressure on her. The next day, Sorry takes Laura back to her house and she is hurt to find that her mum sought the company of Chris for the night. She's furious at her mum for making her stay away. Sorry takes her somewhere to talk and tries to explain as though he understands. And maybe he does. Your mother thought she might feel more cheerful if she spent the night with Chris. Well, why not? I'm in favour of anything that makes you feel better about bad times. 
here you can tell how young Laura is and that she's lived a relatively sheltered life for all that it's been difficult. I have to say, I can remember feeling very much the same when my mum got involved with someone after my dad passed. But being honest, I still can't understand why she chose him. Chris, however, seems like a relatively nice guy, despite his initial jerk reaction when Kate cancelled on him the first time that Jacko got really sick. He has since proved himself to be pretty decent in reality. While trying to understand her mum and everything that is going on, Sorensen reveals a lot about his life, both after and before the Carlisle witches. He doesn't seem to blame his mum for giving him away, even though he ended up living in an abusive home. He's now where he should be, and he's accepting of it all. After they both confide their fears and dreams, Sorry then takes Laura back to see her mum, who tells her pretty much what Sorensen already did, that she needed distraction and comfort and time away for herself. The pair then go to the hospital, and it is there Laura realises that she has to accept Winter and Miriam's offer. She must become a witch because nothing else is going to save her brother from being consumed completely by whatever horrid demon Carmody Brack happens to be. I realise that if I continue on, I am going to spoil. And I don't want to. I want you to read this book. It's not really long. It's about 280 pages, depending on the version you get. But it's so much happens. It was probably, and to be fair, honestly still is, one of the most important books in my life. I have read it at every stage. It's a book I read while my dad was in hospital and was the only book I took with me when my mum took us on holiday after my dad passed away to forget how bad the year had been. Okay, if you say so, a holiday is going to solve everything. It's a book I packed in my suitcase when I moved to Austria at 18 and one that I always take as a paperback when I go on a long journey. I have encouraged friends and family to read it. I recommend it in book clubs, on Facebook pages, and now I am recommending it here. I have three paperback copies so that I know whatever happens, I will always have one. I'm not going to give away the ending, or at least what leads up to it, but I will share the last lines with you because they are so beautifully poetic. Law dreamed of many things, and Jacko, pleased and puzzled by other people's lives, fell asleep on her knee, while the strands of wool along the edge of his ruggy swayed backwards and forwards on the small tide of his even breath. So there, my favourite book on the planet. I love lots of books, but this is probably one that has more meaning than any of the others, and it's not at all like the film. So, I think that's just about it for this week. The spooky episode. I hope you discovered a film that you might want to watch. It really is better than a large number of the others I've seen and added to my future watch list. Don't forget, send me suggestions for Disney Channel originals you want me to possibly suffer through. I will pretty much watch anything. I'm also going to encourage you again and again and again to pick up a copy of Margaret May's incredible book, The Changeover. Honestly, it's well worth reading. I'm pretty active on social media, so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings or just want to say hi, I promise I won't bite. You can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs on Twitter and not before coffee podcast on Facebook. I post in both locations regularly about books I've been reading, episode planning and a lot of other podcast and non-podcast related stuff. Well, 
my mouth is starting to really dry up and I need another cup of coffee. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.